If you remember, if you recall, uh, I know I mentioned to you before, sometimes humanly speaking, I have to really uh, scratch my head when I read through the Psalm of the Week and, and wonder how it's going to apply to whatever particular season of the church calendar we happen to be in. Uh, and that is only through prayer and, and study and the Holy Spirit's leading that gets me through it to a sermon that does justice to the text uh, and that fits the circumstances that we find ourselves living in at any given time. And I have to tell you, uh, today's was by far the most difficult yet. And if you've read ahead and you see it, you'll know what I mean. Uh, especially in light uh, of the fact that, as we've mentioned and you've no doubt seen in your bulletin today being Sanctity of Life Sunday. So I don't want to give you a lot of lead up. Uh, let's just read it together. And I hope you have your Bibles with you. I keep telling you to bring them. But let's read it together and then we'll start to kind of unpack it, which is going to involve uh, the intervention of the Holy Spirit and some heavy thinking on some pretty heavy issues. <clears throat> so this is Psalm 137. The psalmist writes, By the waters of Babylon... We sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Brothers and sisters, that's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. God, our Father, uh, we come before you today thanking you for uh, your love and for your faithfulness, thanking you for your word, whether it's uh, easier to understand or more difficult to understand. We know that in all of these situations, you lend us your Holy Spirit to teach our hearts. And so uh, we ask most especially for that today, Lord, that uh, you would get all human wisdom out of the way, that people wouldn't be uh, looking at me or seeing me, but they would be hearing uh, your word expounded because you promised when you send it forth by your Spirit, uh, it never returns to you in vain, but accomplishes all that you purpose. And so we ask all of these things for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Amen. So I, I would venture to guess that other than maybe Dr. Paul, you haven't heard too many sermons on Psalm 137, right, uh, in your lifetime. It, it's not really the kind of psalm that lends itself easily to preaching. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. In fact, verse 9 at the end of that was probably the most difficult verse in the whole book of Psalms. Right? It's shocking. It's graphic. Uh, it sounds barbaric. It, it, it's a verse that has in the past and perhaps may even have, have caused some of you to doubt the necessity of its inclusion in the Bible uh, and, and to be legitimately asking yourself, how can the Bible be inspired by a God of love when it contains a verse like verse 9 that says, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So, how is a verse like that to be reconciled with Jesus' command to love our enemies? To, to say nothing of our uncompromising stance against abortion and infanticide. Uh, it just doesn't add up, right, humanly speaking. But, 
That doesn't mean we get to skip it. It doesn't mean we get to discount it or doubt its divine and specific inspiration by God's Holy Spirit for insertion in his holy word. So, so where does that leave us? Well, if you remember, we kind of started down this, uh, this road or up this hill, whichever way you want to think of it before. Uh, we've kind of broached this theme with other psalms. The ones that were supposed to be listed on the screen, just kidding, um, about uh, 12 to 15 uh, of those along with today's psalm and two more that we're going to encounter before this series is through, uh, and they are what's called imprecatory psalms. And an imprecation is just a fancy word uh, for a, simply a prayer that calls down God's anger and his righteous judgment on his enemies. That's really all that means. And today's psalm was written in the context, though, of God's people finding themselves in the clutches of some of the worst enemies imaginable. And so it's offered to us here uh, in the Bible as a sobering lament, uh, as also as a song of resolve, and as a prayer for God's righteous vengeance and the vindication of his kingdom. Uh, and what you need to know about it is that it arises from the context of probably the most traumatic uh, event that the Old Testament church ever experienced, and that was the exile of the people of God into Babylon, uh, an exile that uh, they never saw coming, one that although God had warned them of repeatedly, generation after generation, uh, and yet they were utterly unprepared for it. And when it came, and, and how it came, simply took their breath away. And I think you can feel that in, the, uh, in reading the psalm. You can almost hear viscerally uh, what the people of God were experiencing in being separated from the temple, and in being detached from the city of David, and being ripped from the place that they had always known that the Lord had revealed his, uh, his special presence, only to find themselves the objects of harassment and ridicule and scorn uh, and pressed to the margins of society by a culture that looked down their noses at their religious beliefs. Sound familiar? Yeah. Uh, and, and for us this morning, there's kind of three approaches to understanding today's imprecatory psalm, three kind of broad purposes of God which... Uh, when understood correctly, I believe will help us to see why uh, someone would ask God to call down such awful judgments as our psalmist did. Uh, and the first is right in verses 1 through 3 that are recording the pain of God's people, uh, a pain that unfortunately they had to realize that they had brought on themselves. Uh, brought on themselves because of their willful indifference to God's law and their unrepentant acts of infanticide of their own, uh, of offering their children as screaming sacrifices to pagan idols of Molech and their flagrant idolatry in making foreign alliances with foreign lands that led them to corrupt their culture and pervert their religion. Sound familiar? And now, in his opening, the psalmist speaks of Israel in exile and in mourning and in enduring the mockery of their captors, sitting, as, as we read, uh, in the dirt by the waters of Babylon, and they said, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Remembered it now, though, as hapless prisoners of the most worldly, most pagan, most ungodly empire on earth. And so what do, we, what do we learn from that? What do we learn from the pain that's recorded in those first three verses? Uh, well, we learn, firstly, that judgment begins with the house of God. 
Judgment begins with God's individual people. Because the judgment that's recorded in this psalm's opening is ultimately not a judgment against a nation. It's a judgment against God's own people. And what they're experiencing is this enormous and crippling pain because of willfully perpetrated sin. Right? They had abandoned God. They didn't want God to share their lives or to shape their government or to influence their day-to-day decisions. And all God has done is given them what they asked for, right? what they deserved. And that's maybe hard for many of us to hear, mostly because you and I as human beings set a really high bar for sin, right? For what we consider a sin. We think, you know, unless we've robbed a bank or, or unless we've, we've killed somebody, that we're basically pretty okay or, or, or at least probably better than the person sitting next to us, right? But God doesn't see things that way. And he doesn't grade on a curve because God views every infraction of his holy law as cosmic treason. And sometimes he's got to get drastic to get our attention. And so just like hearing a scream in the night that gets our, our adrenaline flowing and motivates us to action, our psalmist today wants us to have an emotional reaction to this mountain of sin that's already taken place in the lead up to them being in the situation that they were in. And so the most obvious takeaway here is particularly for the psalm's original audience would be for them to think, so does this thought of a soldier bashing a baby's head against a rock, does that make you nauseous just to think of it? Good. But he's also saying, but can you tell me how it's any different than what you and your people did when God said in Jeremiah 32, they have built pagan shrines to Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and there they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to Molech. What an incredible evil causing Judah to sin so greatly. Those are the words of the prophet Jeremiah. That sound familiar? In a day and age where unprecedented numbers of children have been sacrificed by the hands of abortionists for the sake of convenience, or the sake of immorality, or of pride, with hundreds of thousands of babies killed so that their parents could maintain a certain lifestyle. Modern-day Americans paying doctors to crush the heads of fetuses in the womb so that the parents are not inconvenienced by an unwanted child. And so the message is, does that cause any real aversion? Not, not just professed aversion, but actual and substantive aversion. Or do we as a nation quietly continue to support it with our ever-increasing taxes and our electoral votes, putting people in places of power who are too brazen to even be shy about publicly promoting sins that God detests? And the second thing we ought to notice in the opening verses of Psalm 137 as the writer pours out his tears, is his recognition of the privileges that the Jews had enjoyed under God's hand of blessing and have now lost. As one commentator said, uh, those who do not esteem the privileges of Zion when they have them will be forced to acknowledge their worth when they don't. Those who don't acknowledge the privileges of Zion when they have them will be forced to acknowledge their worth when they don't. Because you see, the people of God were living, when they're living safe and everything's fine and they're in security and their land is free, they weren't really even thinking about Zion at all. Just about how good things were for them at that moment. Without a second thought as to the source of all of those things. And because they did not value the blessings of God when they had them, they were forced to lament over them when they didn't. Sound familiar? 
But it was a very serious question, and it's one that we do well to pay attention to in our own land that is becoming stranger and stranger and more and more hostile to believers all of the time. You see, that's what the people of God were experiencing when Psalm 137 was written. They were experiencing God's temporal judgment in the form of powerful and cruel and morally corrupt overlords that God allowed to rule over them for 70 years. Demonstrating the truth behind the axiom, as John Calvin wrote, that when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And you and I dare not pass by that without at least a moment reflection because uh, I believe our nation currently stands in grave danger of God's judgment because of our immorality as a nation and our brutality. And unless and until there is widespread repentance and revival, we could face the same or worse. And, and yet, and yet we still have to get up every day and move on. And so how do we do that? How do we, as the psalmist said, sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Uh, and well, for that, we have to turn again to the prophet Jeremiah, because, you know, he actually wrote to these folks in exile when the psalm was written with instructions telling them how to do it. So uh, I wish I could read you the whole chapter, but you can do that on your own. Jeremiah 29. <clears throat> these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of exiles. And it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for its well, in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you decree and deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. And then you will call on me and come to me and pray to me, and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And there's so, there's so much in that passage that I want you to see, but we just don't have time. But a couple of things. Uh, if you know the story, you know, during the exile, there were false prophets, these self-interested, self-promoting uh, false teachers saying to the children of Israel, don't, don't worry about this. It's, it's going to be really short. It's going to be, be really brief, over, over in a minute. I mean, yeah, it looks like you're going to have to go into exile in Babylon, but you're, you're going to be right back in like a matter of weeks, months, months, tops. Don't, don't worry about it. God, God's not going to let it be a, a permanent thing. He, he would never do that. And Jeremiah is saying, they're lying. And you're going to be there for two generations or more. You're going to be there for 70 years, so you'd better get prepared. And just parenthetically here, that verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, uh, I'm sure many of you know it by heart, has special meaning for me and my family. It's been a, a source of strength and confidence in the goodness of God. But just like the story of David and Goliath last week, sadly, it is in the top 10 of most misused verses. Uh, yes, it's filled with hope, and it's filled with promise, and it's filled with God's love, 
But the next time you hear someone rattle it off like a magic spell over something that they want, uh, don't forget it was written to a people just going into exile for 70 years, not once coming out. Right? Just, just to, to give you a quick example, uh, when, when, when Vicki and I lost our home and our business 13 years ago, uh, lost it because at the time, I, looking back now, I think at the time we foolishly trusted in the money we made more than uh, we did in God. Jeremiah 29 11 was one of the verses that really sustained us. Uh, but we still lost our house. We still lost our business. And, and yet, in spite of all of that, God had a future and a hope all mapped out for us. It just wasn't what we thought. Uh, I'll never forget the very first thing I said to Vicki on our way to attend church here, the very first time before stuff in our lives started falling apart, I said to remember we agreed. We are not getting involved in anything in this new church. <laughs> we're we're going to go to worship, and we're going to give our tithes, and we're going to get in the car and go home. But evidently God had a different path marked out for us, and praise God he did. Uh, to bring us here and put us in service uh, in his name to all of you. Uh, and through that, one of the lessons we learned was that we had never really fully appreciated the goodness of God uh, when everything was going our way. So we had to learn it when there was nowhere else to look. Uh, and God had to completely tear us down to build us back up. Uh, and I can tell you as sure as I'm standing here, I wouldn't trade that journey now for anything else. Uh, and the message of Jeremiah and of Psalm 137 is the same. Uh, church, you've got to bloom wherever God plants you. Amen. You've got to bloom wherever God plants you. And for the people of God, uh, the people of Israel in captivity, and, and for me and my family today, and I hope for you and yours, the best thing we could do right now is seek God's face and trust his will and accept his judgments and keep moving on. Amen. And do it in his strength and under his leading. You see, the Jews hadn't been doing that in, in Jerusalem, in Zion. And, and so in exile, they're finally seeing clearly what really matters. And, and this is where our, our psalm today uh, has a, a transition. It takes on a, a, a defiant resolve. The psalmist says in verse 5, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Uh, if my, uh, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. And see, the psalmist is saying, from now on, I'm not going to treasure anything more than I treasure God. Amen. I'm not going to treasure anything more than I treasure worship. I'm not going to treasure anything more than I treasure his means of grace. I'm not going to treasure anything more than his people and his presence and coming in person to the house of God. In short, I'm not going to treasure anything in this life more than I treasure him. And Israel had to learn that lesson in exile, so let's pray we're not poised for the same right where we live. So, so there's, there's, there's pain in verses 1 to 3, there's resolve in, in verses 4 to 6, and thirdly, then there's this imprecation, this imprecatory prayer, uh, this crushing judgment that's called down on Babylon where we read, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, tear it down to the foundations. Daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So now we come to the hard part. So what, what in the world do we do with that? Uh, wh how, how are we to read that and make any kind of sense 
uh, of our Christian experience, well, you know, I, I think one thing is, you know, just as God's purpose to punish sin reveals his righteousness, and, and as his purpose to bless his chosen people reveals his love, his purpose to fulfill his word reveals his faithfulness. His purpose reveals his faithfulness. So we have to ask ourselves, what had God promised to do concerning Babylon? Well, he promised to fully repay Babylon for the level of its own cruelty upon others and particularly the exact pain that had been inflicted on Israel. Again, Jeremiah, Jeremiah 51 says, For the Lord of heaven's armies has not abandoned Israel and Judah. He is still their God, even though their land is filled with sin. He is still the Holy One of Israel. I, this is the Lord speaking, I will repay Babylon and the people of Babylonia for all the wrong they have done to my people in Jerusalem, says the Lord. Verse 49, just as Babylon killed the people of Israel and others throughout the world, so must her people be killed. And so uh, Isaiah actually prophesied about this too. He said, scream in terror for the day of the Lord has arrived, the time for the Almighty to destroy. Everyone in Babylon will run like a hunted gazelle. They'll try to find their own people and they'll flee from their land. In verse 16, their little children will be dashed to death before their eyes. Babylon, the most glorious of kingdoms, the flower of Chaldean pride, will be devastated like Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroys them. Babylon will never be inhabited again. It will remain empty for generation after generation. And, and God's promise to level the walls of Babylon is no small thing. Remember, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, maybe one of the greatest, uh, with, with an outer wall that was anywhere between 42 and 56 miles in circumference, depending on the source you look at, 11 feet thick and 75 feet high. It was too big to fail. Does that sound familiar? But God promised that it would happen, and it did, and it's still that way today. It's still uninhabited, despite the fact that Saddam Hussein tried to rebuild it in 1987, and UNESCO has been funding its, reg uh, its restoration, and unbelievably... The United States Congress has pumped in over $474 million to that area, and it is still barely a shell, because God's word is always true. Because you see, if God promised something in his word, it's going to happen, and he'll fulfill it. And that includes the execution of his judgment. And often, not always, but often he does it in response to the prayers of his people that are in line with his word and his sovereign will. And so when the psalmist today asks God to destroy Babylon, he's not asking God uh, to fulfill his prophetic promise as a, as a personal favor to him, he's asking God to fulfill his prophetic promise and prove himself faithful. Faithful in his promise to right wrongs and to punish sins. So the author of Psalm 137 is not seeking personal vengeance, but rather was asking for God to take action. His prayer wasn't, give me an opportunity to get even. Rather, his prayer was, Lord, you avenge the evil done by the Babylonians to this world and to your people. And there's a significant difference there. And that's, that's kind of imparted here because these imprecatory psalms are not rooted in a spirit of vengeance, but in a passionate desire for God to vindicate his kingdom and to punish those who ignore his law and who mock his Savior. Especially in light of the cross, where Jesus offers his enemies, which you and I once were, a beautiful message of reconciliation if we repent, but of awful and horrifying judgment if not. And church, that's the message of the gospel. 
And so just in closing, I would say, let, let today's psalm shock you. Uh, let, let it make you uncomfortable. Let it clear the fuzzy logic and pseudo-religion out of your head and see this psalm for what it is and to whom it points. So just in closing, think about it like this. Uh, have you ever felt sad till you thought you could cry a river of tears? Then consider Jesus who cried over the sins of his people as he stood outside Jerusalem in the days leading up to Holy Week. Have you ever felt uh, mocked for your faith, put down by the society around you? Then think of Jesus who, through the prophet Isaiah, said, I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. Do you ever feel disconnected from God like you've been cast off into a foreign land in exile? Listen to Jesus from the cross who said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does it hurt your heart to read this psalm about the death of innocent children? Then think of the Father. God the Father, who in love sent his one and only Son into the world. And what did humanity do to him? We killed him. We crucified him. On the rock of Mount Calvary, where in the most stunning reversal, he took the cruelest, ugliest, vilest sins we've committed, sins that shocked the innocent purity of heaven, and gave us, gave me, instead, undeserved mercy and eternal life. And so then with the faithful of every age in the words of Psalm 137, we can pray, Lord Jesus, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I don't set Jerusalem as my highest joy, let my right hand forget to work if I forget you and your work on the cross. And come what may, through tears if need be, keep reminding me of that moment you touched me and made me whole. Can we pray together? God, our Father, we thank you for your holy word uh, and that every element of it, Lord, points us to you. We thank you for uh, this fellowship of people that are here met to worship and to praise you. And I ask, Father, uh, if there's even one here in this place or that can hear this message that doesn't know you as your Lord and Savior, uh, you would surprise them by the power of your holy presence, that you would uh, overcome them by your spirit, and they would truly have ears to hear their Savior calling to them. And we pray all of these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.